Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. to Rule of Three Live. <laughs> See? See? We uh, wanted a guest to come and, and do this with us. Obviously, we wanted it to be someone good and funny who'd pick something amazing. And so we're very, very lucky because we have got the fantastic Andrew hunter Mark. <laughs> it's Miles. He's coming down the steps. Down the steps, like Shirley Bassey. Every single step lighting up on the way. See a, how he sprints. Hello. Look at that. Thank you very much for keeping the applause going until I got to my seat. It was Such a close a thing, but we made it. We made it. Yeah, I mean, you were surprisingly like... swift, actually. Yeah, well that was good. Well good done. speed. Um, yeah. You moved beautifully. Well, I could feel that. I could feel it draining away, and I thought, "Get there!" Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Here we are. Thanks for saving that. So, 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 now, so now we've got the weird thing of having to do the intro. Hello, and welcome to Rule of Three Live. <laughs> a live. <laughs> podcast about comedy done live you'd never know would you (laughs) (laughs) we're recording this in our bathroom and my god it's crowded i'm joel morris um (laughs) prompt i'm jason (laughs) and as usual we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love by taking it apart maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished both approaches are valid our special guest today is the magnificent andrew hunter murray andy who you're basically now a fucking novelist aren't you yes the last day which i've read and is bloody marvellous. 
Yeah, it's not it's not at all funny. Uh, having spent my entire career so far writing and trying to be funny with every fibre of my being, I've turned out to have written a book which is uh, sort of rather serious. W- was it meant to be funny? No, it wasn't meant to be funny. Oh, so that was a huge, that. huge, relief. huge result there. But that was, yeah. that's a weird. That's quite a left turn, isn't it? Having yeah, done things turn. like fish and yeah, uh, QI yeah. and uh, ostentatious, then to go, I'm going to write a serious, you know, climate thriller, basically. Mm. Yes, I have a, I have a, a very I think a deep seated compulsion to do uh, something else than the thing I'm meant to be doing. So oh, this really? is a way of yeah, uh, you know, taking that slightly weird uh, feeling I have about myself and uh, turning it into something else. Are you tempted to get on your phone now and do some antique shopping, for instance? Desperately, yeah, 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 yeah. Podcast. Is it to confirm the inner voice that says you're no good at this? Would you <laughs> listen to Joel? <laughs> but no, I, I, I think I mean certainly I have that compulsion sometimes to go. Well, I'm good at something and people like it, and the first thing you do is that the inner voice that says you're rubbish at this. This is imposter syndrome. Sometimes go. It'd be great if I was right. And then to try something new, and at the end of it, even if you failed, you're going, well, at least my imposter syndrome was right. And it's, it's a ah. weird sort of self-sabotaging compulsion to go, I may have failed, I may be starving, but my God, I was right. Well, that's opened up a very new chasm in my <laughs> <laughs> So uh, thank you that. I'll be spending some time in that chasm later this evening. <laughs> uh, gosh. I don't know. No, I don't know what it is. I think I've always had that slight split between uh, between comedy and and more sci-fi-ish stuff or more thrillery stuff. So, yeah, this is just the latest uh, expression of that. Well, I think that's I think that sold the book very convincingly <laughs> and thoroughly. So, uh, I want to ask you about a very, very sort of practical question there because you are no. I mean, the great thing about something like No Such Thing as a Fish, huge audience and things, and it basically took a bunch of backroom people and made them frontroom people, which is one of the wonderful things about podcasts, uh, and then got you known for doing something which you're already really good at. Is there just a sense of going, well, now I've got this opportunity to go and do something else was there an expectation that you would capitalize on that reputation for being funny and do something funny or was it more that you went oh god now i've got an opportunity to do the other things i like i, I think it was the latter I, i've always i've wanted to write a book since i was about five years old and i just took an extremely long time getting around to it it didn't take that long to write it did it uh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Open with you quite a lot of stories about dogs. And you cats can see and my cars. handwriting improve dramatically <laughs> as the manuscript goes on. Yeah, never do a second draft. That's what I always say. <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was. I think something I'd always wanted to do. And then I, th- I think we've all been, you know, Dan from No Such Thing as a Fish. Uh, you may know as the the Yeti obsessive, and yes. he, since we started Fish, has set up with uh, with Reese Darby uh, and a, th- a third member of that podcast. There's uh, the Cryptid Factor, which he now does, which is every week they take a thing that doesn't exist and they look at it in depth. So they look at the Yeti or Nessie or the Mongolian death worm, whatever it might be, which is a f- favourite on fish. We haven't mentioned it for a few years now because I think we had a ban internally on any further mentions of the Mongolian death worm. But the Mongolian death worm is effectively an enormous worm, lives, you guessed it, in Mongolia, and its power is that it can shoot uh, acid out of its eyes and lightning bolts out of its anus. And this is... No, that's... It's not. No, no it's, it's not really. You're right. Not, it's it's not, you're absolutely I mean, right. I mean, in, in, comedy writing, in comedy writing terms, that's what's called a hat on a hat, isn't it? The lightning bolts would have been enough. But is a, <laughs> is a hat on a hat a bad thing? Well, in, in comedy Have you terms, seen anyone wearing a hat on a hat? <laughs> <laughs> it's never caught on. I guess it's never a great... Uh, no, I guess not. Well, it's, it's one, good, one good gag can distract from another good gag if you do... T- maybe doing them... What's it called in computing terms? Doing them in serial rather than in parallel is the right way to do it. Don't right, do them right, both right. at once. Two separate worms could have had one superpower each and they've really hogged it on one worm. That's so, true. That's for true. For the design committee, I'm having a word. <laughs> or it's a bit like that Beatles Love Project thing where they put one song on top of another Which song. I, when you, I love that. 
Is that your favourite Beatles album? Might be. <laughs> it's really good. Good it's night! Got, it's got the, the hits just keep on coming when you listen to the, so the Love album. They just jam together every good Beatles song. And you're right, they put them in the same track. So you've got, what is it, Get Back mixed with Glass Onion mixed with yeah, Eleanor yeah. Rigby. Does, does it suit your a, busy lifestyle? It's an absolute belter. Yeah, I can listen to three <laughs> Beatles albums in the time it takes to listen to one. That's efficiency. <laughs> So, uh, well, so you're a very efficient person. Oh, extremely, yes. Yeah, you're yes. a very, very busy person, so we're wasting our time. I'm recording another podcast under the table as we speak. <laughs> yeah. It's knee cast, isn't uh, it? Studio time is so valuable now that we often stack two podcasts at once above each other in a double deck. But hang on, while we're on podcasts, we should mention No Such Thing as a Fish because it is, it's, it's gigantic, isn't it? It's such a successful podcast. It's the Mongolian death worm of the podcast world. It is, really. Yeah, yeah. It shoots um, lasers out of its eyes and, and, and lightning bolts out of its eyes with its aim. Anus, the powerful anus? James Harkin. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've shared a dressing room. I sh- yeah, certainly have. You played Sydney Opera House, haven't you, in the yes. Hammersmith Apollo? Yes. Thing. Yeah, it's all got a bit out of hand and we are trying to rein it in. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. You're really the Led Zepp of uh, podcasts. Oh, podcasts. Yeah, yeah. That's a very, very, very important qualification. But without the tour bus antics. Uh, yeah, we don't have a bus. Um, Learjet? Uh, no, no, there's nothing. We hired a bus once. Did you walk to Sydney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the gig happened four years after we started the podcast. Yeah. No, it's, it, has, it has been so lovely doing fish over the last few years. I mean, it's really... God, it's been six years next month since we started. Wow. We so far, haven't missed a week, which is very exciting. But we owe a lot of that to our bosses at QI, who let us make a podcast during time when we really should have been, you know, getting on with writing the show, researching facts for the show, this kind of thing. Right, so basically this is a thing, it's a, it's a parasitic thing on top of QI yeah. that's ended up being possibly bigger than QI in terms of audience and, and, and oh, reach things right. maybe even. Don't know about that. The nice, I think there is that nice ramshackle feel about it because it is. it did start with conversations from... QI researchers we were having they were overspilling a lot we were just mm. say, or we'd find you'd find out a great fact about geese but that's no good because we were actually on the the L series by now because every series is a letter yeah. of the alphabet and so you think well what am I going to do with this fact about geese well I'll probably just tell Anna or James or whatever and there's no way of getting that into the show unless you find a really clever uh, we call it the QI crowbar where you get something into the show you know, it's, oh, what, how could you get geese into the L series? Yeah, so it was just, there were loads of facts piling up, and we thought, well, let's just get around a microphone. And we didn't mean to put the first one online, even. It was meant to be, we just put it up on our SoundCloud thing, because our bosses wanted to listen. Yeah. And there was a problem with sending it via WeTransfer, which would have been the, the normal way of doing it. So we just kind of put it online, and then someone, one of us tweeted, oh, we've tried this little thing, and then that got about... Five or ten thousand listens. What? So it was accidental. It was accidental. Yeah, yeah. It escaped. It escaped. Yeah. (laughs) And then we listened to the file, and in horror, we realised Dan had said, "Okay, we'll see you again next week." Fuck. (laughs) So we then had kind of committed to doing a weekly one. That's so beautifully accidental that the joy, I think, of good podcasts, especially if you come from broadcasting, is that everything in broadcasting takes so long. There's always so many yeses and nos. There's so many gates. And the joy of a good podcast is that the first question you ask is, "What do I like to talk about down the pub with my mates?" Well, if you taped that, and the number of podcasts that are basically, that's the only discussion, that's the only commissioning discussion is, what are we already talking about? Yeah. Would you like to listen in? And that's the perfect example. Something which sounds like it's come from a broadcaster, come from a, a respected production company, has still been created the same way as most bedroom podcasts. Yeah, That's absolutely. miraculous to end up that big. I, th- I genuinely think of it as being independent broadcasting, because until the internet stops working, we cannot be decommissioned. We cannot be stopped. 
which is very... Uh, You're like a Mongolian death one. It feels a bit like that, yeah. Yeah, it's heaven. Because like lots of, everyone who works in comedy has experience of gatekeepers and the sort of meetings where they say, well, I'm not sure about the uh, the microphones you used. And I think, uh, what about the cushions? And you think, okay, well, the cushions are not the main part of what we're doing, but <laughs> the gate remains closed. So, uh, so to find a way where you can get around that and have whatever cushions you like is extremely pleasing and satisfying. It yeah. is all, it's all about the cushions, isn't it? Really? And the great thing about podcasting, and you can hear from the quality of the broadcasting we're doing right now, no one is in charge of this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We do this all day. We it seems incredible, this. doesn't it? it really I mean, you'd does. think this had been really heavily gatekeepered, but no, no one, no one's telling us to start or stop. We're getting out of here at about nine. Great, brilliant. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have covered everything. Um, it's interesting because you chose something to bring on here today, which is perfect mm. for you and from where you're from. It's something we've been desperate to talk about for ages, but brilliantly, is a completely organic thing. It's a classic comedy thing that I know is hugely important for Jason and I, but it happened completely organically and it came from just people chatting which is the purest form of comedy. Do tell us what you're bringing on. Okay, so the thing I'm bringing today is it's a book um, and it's a, a, uh, it's a comedy book. Do the mime. Uh, comedy book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's uh, no more beating around the bush. It's a book called The Meaning of Lif, which... Yeah, it's got some fans, thank God. Okay, great. Now what's my definition? The Meaning of Lith is a small, black dictionary with gold lettering on it. It's faintly religious in tone, but inside readers will find a dictionary. A dictionary of things there ought to be words for, but aren't. This is a comedy crowd. We, Jason and I do a lot of literary festivals promoting things like the Ladybird books, and we always say, <laughs> Meaning of Lith, who's read it? At literary festivals, no one puts their hand Really? This belongs to comedy people not books people which always surprises me I think yeah. it's a book, book, book book it's a proper book so it's published in 1983 I think it might still be in print the original version is by Douglas Adams and John Lloyd and so it's no good at all because <laughs> they don't know how to write and the, the it's a dictionary and the premise is unbelievably simple the premise is that there are lots of things situations experiences sometimes objects in life that don't have a name and they should it would be great if they did have a name and the other half of the premise is that there are a lot of perfectly good names for things that are not in use at the moment they are only being used on signposts and they're just sort of littering up atlases and county gazetteers and things like this so what if we this is what Douglas Adams and John Lloyd thought what if we marry the two together we will take a really good place name and we will match it to the thing or the experience or the feeling in the world that it most sounds like and that you combine those two together that is a lif and the meaning of lif is a book of several hundred of these and it is an unbelievable way of getting comedy across to people you know yeah. it's it's observational comedy kind of a, in one of its purest forms it it's is, a stand-up set yeah it's it's seinfeld saying have you ever noticed the thing blah what about that? And then th that's it. That's all it is. But it's yep. done so crisply and the writing is so good and so they're also curt. And it's done with this lovely formality because it's a dictionary and it's proper. So that provides comedy as well. And yeah. Yeah, every time you get, a, you, you get a definition, you get a place name. So it says Ely and then brackets noun. And then it says the first tiniest inkling you get that something somewhere has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> That, now, John, uh, John Lloyd says that was the first one that he and Douglas Adams wrote of all the definitions really? in this. He also says that isn't true, but that's what he says. 
which there should be a word for. <laughs> a John Lloyd anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't true, but I, I'm on the after dinner circuit and something needs to go here. Yeah. <laughs> but the Ely is followed by a Wembley. Yes. A Wembley is the horrible, hideous moment of confirmation that the disaster presaged in the Ely <laughs> has actually struck. <laughs> And then, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm impressed by this because we always say that it's very, very hard. You have to read Liff out off the page. And you've both just done that verbatim because they're two ones you know really well. The thing you find with Liff is if you quote it to someone without the book in your hand, you're not funny. The magic just disappears. The book contains the words that describe his experiences with every word in exactly the right place. And if you say the first faintest feeling that something somewhere is about to go terribly wrong. It's not as fun. It's every single word needs to be in the right place. And these have been written with the economy and the craft of haikus. They are comedy writing over very short sprints to the level of art. It's just life boiled into lift. Mm. And it's as a craft, you read this and go, oh my God, I wonder if I could do that. And I think that's why comedy writers are big fans of this book. I and you've right. done, you have actually written lifts, haven't you? I have, yes. Oh, see, this, is, this is how we are in the presence of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was the meaning of lift in 1983, and then a few years later there was the deeper meaning of lift, which was the follow-up book, which was bigger and glossier and, uh, and had one. even more lifts in it. And then there was a brief pause of about 30 years, and... <laughs> um, uh, Douglas Adams passed away, very sadly. Uh, but John Lloyd and John Cantor, who had actually written a lot of the the lifts, I think, in uh, deeper meaning of lift, he'd been the kind of third man on that project. Yes. John Lloyd and John Cantor uh, teamed up uh, once again to write After Lift, uh, which is the third book in the series. And I was the uh, what is the book editorial term? Uh, the slave on that project. <laughs> uh, and as, <laughs> as soon. As soon as they said, we are writing this book of lists, do you want to be involved in any way? I said, yes, of course. And what I was thinking was, well, I'm secretly going to, you know, just do this so I can write um, lifts and lifts of my own and try and sneak them into the book and, or, you know, run them past the two Johns and get them in. So, yeah, that was, that was the incentive for coming on board. And, uh, and I got a few into the, the final How thing, many? Like, How many? How many? Uh, I mean, it would be a bit embarrassing if I counted, but 40. LAUGHTER uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say three. I thought it was just going to be this astonishing thing where the bar for lift is so high that you, I submitted eleven thousand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, the bar. I mean, the bar. The bar is high, and it's 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 because John Lloyd, throughout his whole career, from you know from Spitting Image and Blackadder until now, still he's you know the, he's the chief gnome on QI as we call him. Um, his uh, attention to detail is so uh, great that you have to get things absolutely word perfect. Uh, for them to be good enough. So, yeah. So I mean, it, that, the, the books bear the hallmark of someone who said... The, the, the trick with this is, you'll know this with anything which has got a distinctive style. Uh, you think you can do it. Mm. And then you try and do it and you find out how hard it is. It's really hard to write a viz letter. It looks easy. It right. turns out to be really hard. The balance of words is really difficult. And it's really hard to write a lift. And so you keep getting it wrong. And I imagine that someone like John Lloyd... I was listening to... There was a lovely radio show where for 30 years of lift... They celebrated it, and they asked members of the public to send them in. And I thought, well, this would be interesting, because I bet you it's harder, as a member of the general public, rather than a member of a small comic elite on Maiden Lane, to, to get the, the wording right. And I thought, I'd be interested to see how the public word a lift. And obviously, by the time anyone got to read them out, John said, of course, I've, I've edited a lot of these. <laughs> so he wouldn't even get them to the point of reading them out in a competition. 
without going through and moving the words around because that's how these work. They've, they've got no space to work in and they're completely naked, so they've got to be as beautiful as they can. One of the ones that I read occasionally when we do any talks, and I, this is one I can't do from memory because it's too long, but this is just a beautiful bit of prose. Hambledon, noun. The sound of a single-engined aircraft flying by, heard whilst lying in a summer field in England, which somehow concentrates the silence and sense of space and timelessness, and leaves one with a profound feeling of something or other. <laughs> it's just occurred to me listening to you read that, because it's all about rhythm and pace and things. Yep. That ends with a drum roll. <laughs> yeah. And it's got that thing, it goes, it's even there's, there's these hidden pentameters and everything, everything's weighed yeah. and balanced. And that's also got a classic Douglas Adams trick. And all of these are written in the style of the phrase, the plastic cup filled with a liquid, which is almost, but not quite, entirely unlike tea. Ah. Almost an entirely <laughs> unlike tea, which is a lovely phrase. <laughs> It's full of hang in the air in the way that bricks don't yeah. phrasing. That the last word is where you get the lovely punchlines, but never uh, crude and raspberry klaxoned. You try and work out who's written who, but you can't. They, 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 they're the same mind, yeah. John and, and, and Douglas. There's a lovely one which I found, which I'd completely forgotten, which is Brampton Bielo. The chuntering noises made by an old photocopier to let you know it's thinking about doing something. <laughs> <laughs> and it's thinking about doing something. Yeah. But that contrasted with the academic precision. And what's funny about this is, is they've chosen a style. It's dressed, it's professorial. It's dressed yeah. in academic robes. But at the same time as being dressed as an academic, it has shared your life with you. And it knows that you are someone who uh, instantly gets hairs in your mouth at the commencement of sex. <laughs> An observation like that, you go, well... Sorry, that was just me. And <laughs> yeah. then you go, oh, no, it's everybody. And, oh, it's even the professor. There's incredible humanity to it in that it says, you may think that you were alone and ashamed to experience something, something to do with farts or erections or toilets, something taboo. But by writing it in this sort of dictionary style, in this very, very dry way, it says, it's okay, there's, there's even a word for this. Yeah. And it's incredibly empowering. It breaks taboos and it makes you feel no longer embarrassed to be alive. And I think that was an amazing thing to experience as a, as a, as a young teenager when everything was embarrassing. <laughs> you go, there's stuff in here that wouldn't have happened to me by then. That, when that happens to me when I'm 18, when, when I'm doing my tax return, I won't feel embarrassed. <laughs> I still feel embarrassed to be alive, so I'd just like to get that uh, very... That's, that's just because we put you here. Everyone's staring at you. <laughs> so what did you, what did you. What did you get in? What did you get into? Well, I, I can't, I, actually, I had a look through uh, yesterday and I can no longer remember what, which ones Brilliant. mine and which well, ones Well, that's how it should so, be, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, Afterlift is... John's oh. rewritten them so much, I can't yeah. recognise any of them. <laughs> well, I love the ones that... So there are so many different categories of joke in... Um, in lif, in liffery. Uh, some of them, as you say, are, are very lavatorial. A lot of them are quite, uh, quite penis-y. Uh, a lot of them are about <laughs> social life or general life. A surprising number about farting. And then you get more surreal ones. But some of my absolute favourite ones are about people. So in Afterlift, there's uh, Clist Honiton. Okay, Clist Honiton. Two words. Weird guy you wouldn't look at twice if he wasn't a software billionaire. <laughs> and that's... Uh, <laughs> 
I don't think we knew about Elon Musk when this was written. And well, yeah, after this got a great thing in it because it was written 30 years after, and it's completely in the key of Douglas Adams in that it's obsessed by technology. Yeah. But it's amazing that the first one hadn't got all the email and software billionaire jokes yeah. in it. It's the reason Afterlife I think is completely justifiable. Is not only is it as funny in places as the original and written from a completely good place, but it covers a load of subjects that didn't exist yeah, but are completely bizarre. Douglas and John. Yeah, and it's just wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to go through reading out more now. Yes, um, please. That's fine. Well, there are some which are. Um, oh, I mean, there's some of these I use in my in my day to day life. That's the thing. I wrote down. Well, I just read through the book, and I I found the ones that I genuinely say, uh, and which people often don't. Of course, they don't know because they're from this comedy book. But uh, Oshkosh. Uh, a lovely thing about the lists is they they come with each letter comes with a little map of where in the UK or in fact the world all these places are some of the maps are really shit Oshkosh there's just in fact Oshkosh there's just a little arrow off the side it's got Britain and a little arrow off to the side so it's somewhere west of Britain um, Oshkosh the noise made by someone who has just been grossly flattered and is trying to make light of it so sometimes if someone says something nice to me and I feel uncomfortable I just say Oshkosh to them and it kind of gets it across it kind of does the job the, t- the two that I constantly deploy one of which uh, one is um, a Ludlow which is, I mean, I can read it, can't I? Because I've got copies oh, of the book in front of me. So a Ludlow you, is... You can find it. We're, in, we we're, in the basement of, uh, we're, we're in the basement of a bar now, so everyone will understand a Ludlow. But a Ludlow, <laughs> noun, is a wad of newspaper, folded table napkin or lump of cardboard put under a wobbly table or chair <laughs> to make it stand up straight. So when you're in a pub, you just fold a beer mat four times and go, we need a Ludlow under here. Um, and well, that, that's that, got that, another joke after it. Oh, it's yeah. the one that, uh, before yeah, he got yeah. his artificial legs fitted, Douglas Bader moved around on an enormous pair of Ludlows. Yeah. <laughs> and they move. They move into this weird, surreal territory sometimes. Which, again, was a huge influence, I think, on This Is Profanosaurus, where they were the same academic term was used for laboratorial jokes and then would go right. off into citations, quotes yep. from Shakespeare... And it's yeah. always funny to when you've got something which is about human frailty to then go, but it's okay because the emeritus professor of Ludlow's has written this piece. And it's got this sense of fake expertise behind it, yeah. which John and Douglas were always brilliant at doing, probably with the authority of having been to a very, very good school and very, very good <laughs> university. So Didcot is one of those. Didcot is... Uh, I think we still get tickets. I'm not sure. I, I think I've seen them recently. The tiny, oddly shaped bit of card which a ticket inspector cuts out of a ticket with his clipper for no apparent reason. <laughs> and I think you still get those on some trays. But it follows up. It says, It is a little known fact that the confetti at Princess Margaret's wedding was made up of thousands of tickets collected by inspectors on the royal train. <laughs> so, what a great, you know, that's a classic sort of hitchhiker style swerve into lovely, the absurd. Lovely yeah. image of the Queen having to give up yeah. a ticket <laughs> no. for someone to I've clip a hole in before. Your Majesty. <laughs> ticket inspectors on the Royal Train. I've never noticed that before. The no, Royal right. Train which has one passenger at any given time. Can <laughs> <laughs> you see your ticket, man? She doesn't, she's carry, a, doesn't carry cash, but always carries a ticket. There's a bath on the Royal Train, isn't there? Yes. I'm sure I might have learned that from Fish, actually. It's, Did I learn that from Fish? Well, we, we said the fact, and this is a bit of Royal Train law, and I don't know if it's true, but the, uh, the suggestion is that when the Royal Train is uh, going along quite early in the morning or it's been somewhere overnight or whatever that the driver of the Royal Train is instructed at 7.30 in the morning to only go over smooth bits of track because the Queen is having her bath at that time now obviously how can you choose that? you can't choose to go over smooth bits I know, I don't know 
so it doesn't work, obviously. That idea doesn't work, but that there is are equerries greasing the wheels. Yeah. <laughs> also, there yeah. aren't really very, there aren't lumpy bits of railway track, are there? You don't go, oh, a bit of a <laughs> bit of a humpback bridge coming up here on the one two five. Don't do any stunts. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what they're saying. It's just this is bath time, so please be careful. Yeah, yeah don't, don't go off any bridges. Are they just yeah. saying sort of slow down so Her Majesty doesn't get sloshed in, you know? I guess, radox. I guess so. I guess or something. So. I'm guessing yeah. she uses radox. Uh, surely imperial leather. Post imperial leather would be what she uses. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Surely. Commonwealth <laughs> leather. Struggling Commonwealth to adjust <laughs> to life after imperial leather. <laughs> so difficult. Bless um, I've got, um, the words that you use, I mean, I know that uh, John and Douglas were furious that they never got into the Oxford English Dictionary. And it always surprised me. They, they, they wanted, they said, well, the, the idea would be that these would escape the book mm. and somehow become uh, everyday words. And I, I use them. I mean, you use Ludley. I, I, yeah. I use... Vancouver's one, the other one I use. Yeah. A Vancouver is one of those vans that comes down the road that just hoovers up the leaves from the gutter, <laughs> you know? One of those. I taught, I taught this to my 10-year-old a little while ago and said, oh, there's a Vancouver. Um, and uh, and uh, they now say, well, the, the Vancouver's coming, Daddy. Oh, yeah, yeah, really? of course it is. Yeah. Maybe yeah. this is the future. Maybe it, will t- maybe it just takes a generation to go in. The one, the one I always use is Fremantle, which is uh, to steal things not worth the bother of stealing. <laughs> one steals cars, money and silver, book matches, airline eye patches and individual pots of Trust House Forte apricot jam are merely Fremantled. <laughs> That's what, great. It's what you leave a hotel with. And it's, I love that. I mean, the other one I always liked, really liked was Bickerstaff, which is the person in an office that everyone whinges about in the pub. Many large corporations deliberately employ Bickerstaffs in each department. For example, Sir Robert Maxwell is both chairman and chief Bickerstaff of Miracle <laughs> Newspapers. <laughs> and I remember loving that. that that's actually weirdly, that, those two, which I remembered being in the little original one, which I loved, turn out they're both in the Utterly, Utterly Merry Comic Relief book where they wrote some extra ones, which I think I loved as much as the original. Then they made their way into the Deeper Meaning of Lift, which they wrote with Stephen Fry and a couple of other people. But um, Bickerstaff, I use all the time. And the thing I loved about Bickerstaff, especially that definition, is its sort of swaggering man of the worldness that I liked about Monty Python, with this assuredness, especially reading it as a kid, that you went, hey, these guys know. They know the phrase mirror group newspapers. And a, a, a worse writer would say the Daily Mirror. And I love the sort of private eyeness of the way they talked about the world, that these people had meetings with these important people, and then they were doing this silly book which contained knowledge they'd garnered through dealing with what appeared to be invulnerable big figures and accountants and taxmen and prostitutes and people who I hadn't met as, ch- as a child. But I love that, that sort of swaggering tone, which is in there as well as the, the academic dryness, is, is that we've been to jobs, we've met big businessmen, and they're wankers. I like that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The one that I feared I might be, um, Clunes. Oh, yes. I think I am a, I yes. I am a clune, actually. Clunes is a, what is it? It's a it's plural noun. It's just people noun. who just won't leave, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you're right. So what's, people who just won't go. No, sorry, I don't think I am a clune, but I do think I'm, and I don't know. We can see, always I'm, use the index. There is a fantastic index oh, at the back of this, which I remember yeah. discovering after a couple of years with it, and it's as funny as the actual book. It's so funny. These, um, these books as well, they're, they're clearly coming after a period of, of the Python books and the goodies books where comedy books at Christmas were done by very clever people and after the not annuals where they were really dense with jokes and so mm. the, the maps are funny the index is funny this used to come it's long since gone missing with a sticker with this book will change your life on it in um, bright orange and then the definition of lift was any book whose contents are completely belied by the cover for instance any book with this will change your life written on it which was just a total joke it would take, yeah. and you weren't until you you got to L before you realised what the joke of the cover was completely I love that density of comedy well they put a sticker on Afterlift and it just says free sticker <laughs> so they found a second sticker joke that took 30 years I mean amazing so the the, <laughs> the sort of person I thought or I feared I was, and it turns out the clunes is not the right definition for it. I frequently remember. I don't know if you guys have this. I I remember the the definition, and I don't remember the name of it. Yes, totally. So there's the, a the definition which is the sort of people who have to leave before a party can really cut loose and start enjoying itself. Yes, and I I am that person, and I know, and you know, I'll toy with my hosts by pretending to leave and then just stay, bringing it down for a bit. But the entry, you're so so right about the uh, the index, job because. The, the index is so funny. Uh, any fans of Richard Ayoade's books in, by the way? Oh, me, yeah. Holy moly, the indexes in that are so, so funny because he has, again, a very academic yeah. persona. And um, his, latest is, uh, his latest book is Ayoade on Top, which is so funny. It's, it's the highest concept for a book I've ever seen. I mean, it's, it's as though he's trying to test the audience to destruction because it's basically, it's the whole, <laughs> the whole book is about the 2003 cabin crew slight rom-com View from the Top starring Gwyneth Paltrow uh, and a host of other people it's got Mark Ruffalo it's got Mike Myers it's got a lot of people who went on to be very 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 famous but it's a really bad film like it's awful and he treats it very seriously for about 200 pages <laughs> and it is but, and the, it is a hilarious book and I watched the film before I read that <laughs> but the, his indexes are always really impressive there is actually a professional society of indexes and I yeah. don't know if they do that or well, what you have to do them, did you have to do them by hand if you, if you publish a book you're, you're you're given an indexer by your publisher and it costs money so you can choose to not have one it's always it comes out of your budget to get an index made so if you make your own index okay you're saving money um, that's a top publishing tip so parties just finding 
parties in the index. You've got anger after, you lead to refer to Heaton Puncharden. Crud under sofa after, Siloth. <laughs> Dreadful guests at, Nubbuck, Orterby. Uh, drink running out at, Asliach. And Irks you can't get away from at is East Wittering. But if you go to, if you go to the Wittering one, so there's, there's West Wittering. Uh, West Wittering is the uncontrollable twitching which breaks out when you're trying to get away from the most boring person at a party. <laughs> that is West Wittering. Then you look at East Wittering, and it is the same as West Wittering, only it's you they're trying to get away from. <laughs> That's, like, and there's no reference in West Wittering to East Wittering. You have yeah. to find that on your own. It's, got, yeah. it's got the, it's got the, the movement. It's like hyperlinks. It's, it's, you can read it. It's a three-dimensional book to read because it's made of these tiny little nubbins, which you can imagine is a huge network. And you can, it's, it's very, very 3D and very Douglas Adams, the idea that there, was, there were other ways to read your way through it apart from, from front to back. Yeah. That the index would, would rearrange the same 400 jokes into a different order. So it's incredibly good value. Very, very re-readable. What I think is incredible about these books is that they are a masterclass in comic writing, but they're a masterclass in comic writing at a level that is um, semiotic, that's almost like worth academic study. Because there are lots of them, there are categories, and some of them are really good observations which you've shared, some of them are observations for things that have never happened to you, you go, God, wouldn't it be awful if I lived in a world where that happened? Some of them are just stupid, but some of them are just exactly the right word for a thing. And that's something that semiotics professors study all the time. Does a word have to sound like it? It's not onomatopoeia. It's something called, I think it's called sound symbolism or phonesthetics. phonesthetics. Some things just sound like the thing they're meant to sound like. The arrangement of syllables in a word will remind you of a thing. And some of these are just funny because of that. Balzan, the noise of a dustbin lid coming off in the middle of the night. <laughs> and there's no reason why, I mean, that's, that's a, a good observation but also just the sound is perfect and it's not that's an onomatopoeic one but some of them are just the, the your west wittering things that's the perfect word for that person and it's not to do with west wittering as a place or the meaning of the word west wittering it's to do with the arrangement of syllables within the word west wittering yeah. and that's working on another level of comic writing that will get you to the way that dickens makes up character names it's working with tools that are really primal, down to the individual letters and syllables. That's and the very true. It's, ex it's in exactly that it comes from exactly the same ingredients as, as Dickens's character names, doesn't it? That's yeah. These are all pumblechooks, aren't they? Yeah. They're all, yeah. They've, they've got these. They've got these wonderful things. Which again, the great writers always played with this. Lewis Carroll did. Tolkien was obsessed with uh, phonesthetics. I'm going to get the word right. Like, he said the wrong thing before someone a phonesthetician. No, but, um, but yeah, he, he was obsessed. Yeah. It's called phonesthesia. And it's like uh, synesthesia. It's you see an arrangement of letters and it makes you feel a thing. There's an experiment, apparently, which uh, anthropologists and uh, linguists have done, which is they show kids of different uh, ethnicities two shapes. One's a sort of blobby shape and one's a spiky shape. And they give them two words, one of which is like tibim, and one is boab. And they say, which one's which? And every kid will agree the blobby one is boab, no matter what your language is. There's something about letters. <laughs> Here's one I can never remember, but I always remember. Uh, high limerig noun, the topmost tread of a staircase which disappears when you're climbing the stairs in the darkness. 
Now, I've got very confusing stairs at home, and that happens to me pretty much daily, it's or nightly, nice. rather. That there's a lot of those where they blame inanimate objects for disappearing or fooling yeah. you or <laughs> tricking you. The world is out to get you in these books. It's got a... Um, I, same as Hitchhiker's. Hitchhiker isn't a book about space travel or anything. It's a book about being annoyed in your late 30s. Um, and this has got this lovely thing of you could triangulate these two men from this book. Everything that's ever annoyed them is in there. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. so we know how it started, don't we? Because uh, Lloydie told me this, that in 1978, he and Douglas Adams were commissioned to write the first Hitchhiker's novel um, and in order to do this, they they did what anybody would do, which is to book a holiday to Greece. Um, so the two of them decided they would go to Corfu, where they would start, where they would write their novel. Um, before they got on the plane, um, Douglas Adams fired John Lloyd and said, "I'm going to write this on my own." Lloyd, he said, "Well, I've paid for this fucking holiday, so I'm going on it." So he joined him. And the two of them stayed in this villa in a, a village called Agiostefanos in the northwest of Corfu. Um, and basically, Douglas Adams would sit there and type on the balcony, and uh, John Lloyd would go down to the local taverna and drink incredibly strong coffee until about 11.30 in the morning when Douglas was done for the day because he was notoriously hardworking. Um, <laughs> and then he would come down and join him, and they'd sit there in the bar for the rest of the day where they would make up silly games including this one which is where it came from um and meanwhile john lloyd had learnt very advanced corfiat swearing from the owner of the taverna who was a guy called manthos who is still alive i went there last year while i was on holiday i was in corfu and i thought i can't resist i've got to go so i went there i missed him by about 10 minutes he's there every day for an hour and he still sits there and swears gloriously and enjoys the food. <laughs> and the taverna's still there, and it's very nice. Um, and that's where, that's where this book came to life, and the hot places of Corfu. But it took, like, five years before the idea turned into a book. So well, it started the, out as a game that Douglas had said that his English teacher that's right, had set yes, them in class. Brentwood School, a, yeah. As a test. And then there's a possibility that that, in turn, may have come from a game that uh, Paul Jennings, the Observer columnist, used to play which was very similar. Was that place names as well? Yeah, that uh, was place names, place yes. Names yeah, so, his, so Douglas's English teacher had got it from Paul Jennings in The Observer, and he'd then given it to the class, and he would say to the class, so what is Epping? Or he'd say, what are devices? And he would get the class to kind of work out a definition for the place name he'd just thrown them. So similarly, what they're doing there, that's a classic English teacher's thing. That's about semiotics. That's, that is fond aesthetic. So what does this sound like? Mm. That's not about saying... Last night, my jarred my leg on the way up the stairs. There's got to be a word for that. That's definitely doing it from the place names backwards. And when you read the Jennings ones, they're very much to do with seeing a place name and then going, what could that be? Whereas this feels like... But I think what happened is that John had a gazetteer and wrote down yeah. on index cards loads and loads of place names. And then they played a card game with it. So for Afterlift, uh, I still have next to my desk in the office... Uh, at QI, a huge stack of index cards. Done the same way. Yeah, I needed to nick one wow. to make some notes on the other day, and just it's got Horrocks written at the top of it. Yeah, nothing, nothing else on it. But um, so I, th I think that's what's fascinating about this is this is not only got we were talking about sort of things being organic. The the birth of this game. This is in the early eighties, and it only occurred to me last night. You look at these, that and that. These covers, they're board games. They look like Trivial Pursuit. In fact, they look after in a mint. They've got that sort of slightly. Uh, <laughs> posh 80s yuppie game thing there's something of cards against humanity in this there's something about drunk friends sit round and when conversation is dried up or you know each other so well as David Knob said you know each other's opinions on everything from fascism to emulsion paint you start playing a game 
And it feels like you're eavesdropping on a game being played by friends, but also by the cleverest, funniest friends you know. You just mentioned After Dinner Mints. Can we do the After Dinner Mints one? Oh, yeah, Canuck Chase. <laughs> Canuck Chase. This is a great one. This is one of my faves. Absolute faves. I've, I've done Canuck Chase before. So this is, uh, we all know and love After Eight Mints, don't we? Yay! Guys? Not the usual After Eight crowd here, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, it's not eight. They're more of a Bendix Bitterminds lot. <laughs> well, okay. Max so, make a ganger in. So four of us here know After Eight Mints, and that will have to do. Um, Here's Canic Chase. In any box of After Eight Mints, there is always a large number of empty envelopes and no more than four or five actual mints. The Canic Chase is the process by which, no matter which part of the box you insert your fingers into, or how often, you will al always extract most of the empty sachets before, pi before pinning down an actual mint, or Canuck. And, that's, I, and again, that ends on a really nice one. Also, that's got a lovely feel. I'd always... I got a synesthetic gag running recently saying, what is it about 1980s board games and after-dinner mints that they package the same. Yeah. And that's turned After Eights back into a game, which I really like. Yeah. It, doesn't look, it looks like the missing bit of Trivial Pursuit, doesn't it? I, did, I tried yeah. I once. I did contact Lloydie once and said, I've got an idea for one, but I haven't got the place name for it. And I said to him, it's that thing where you, having got out of the car, you go up to the front door of your house and you try and centrally unlock the house <laughs> with the car key. And he said to me, I've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> there, and that was the end of that. <laughs> Isn't that the deal with this? Is that this, like most stand-up, anyone who's done stand-up, you stand up there for your first thing and you go, hey, has anyone else keep their toenail clippings in their pocket? And it just goes dead. And you go, shit, it's just me. Every one of these risks, and is it just me? There are a few yeah. where I think, who suggested that to the other one? And were they ever uh, worried that the other one would go, Or did no, the I other one just go, yep, we're going to publish that. Well, I'll know who that was. What is it? Okay, Yonkers, right? Yonkers, noun, rare. The combined thrill <laughs> of pain and shame when being caught in public plucking your nostril hairs and stuffing them into your side pocket. Now, either... Douglas Adams or John Lloyd has done that or both but I think it's much more likely to be one of them and you will have had to they will have had to sit with each other kind of suggesting you know have you ever had a a humby a humby is uh, a hubie is a half erection large enough to be a publicly embarrassing bulge in the trousers not large enough to be of any use to anybody uh, now, do you know whose favourite lift that is oh, no JK Rowling really <laughs> Showbiz Dirty old God, Dirty what Joe. have we learned? Naughty Joe. <laughs> there is in the um, in the buried on the prelims for the deeper meaning of Liff um, is uh, with grateful thanks to and then there's a long list of names that includes Helen Fielding and Sean Hardy and Helen Reese Jones and for some of the more interesting and repellent ideas in this book. <laughs> A lot of them are really... Uh, I think Helen, Helen Fielding's is... They wrote Bridget Jones' diary. Hers, her, one, her one is definitely Perth. Perth, a silent fart. So I think it's, there's some unlikely people who've given the dirty ones. Interesting. I like, um, of, the, of the fart ones, I think, Berepa <laughs> is my favourite. Oh, it's really, on, really onomatopoeic. So it's the irrevocable and sturdy fart released in the presence of royalty. <laughs> Which sounds, which sounds quite like a small motorbike passing by, but not enough to be confused with one. It's <laughs> a short story. Three jokes there. They've done three jokes in one sentence. It's magnificent. It's so good. There's a lovely thing in this. It seems to be this. It's a sort of pian, a sort of poem, a hymn to acceptance, to sort of saying, yeah, 
Yeah, we all do that. <laughs> and I, was, I was delighted to find Matt Lucas uh, chose the Minnie as his Desert Island Discs book. As he reckons it's the funniest book ever. And he said something genuinely beautiful about it because he gets it absolutely. He says... The whole book is the, the realisation that the personal is actually communal and uh, the realisation that we're all part of something a lot bigger. So, in a way, you know, there is the meaning of lift there. <laughs> uh, uh, the realisation that you are not alone, that you've experienced the same embarrassment. And I think that's beautiful because by sharing... Again, a lot of these are taboos, the erections and the farts and the putting your nostril hairs in your pocket. They're things you wouldn't discuss. But <laughs> behind the cloak of an index card definition for something, you can sort of say, I do unacceptable things. But there's also there's, there's things I do that, I can, that literally can only happen when I am present. So there's um, one of my favourite ones is Abilene, which is descriptive of the pleasing coolness of the other side of the pillow I so in the middle one. of the night when you wake up it's too hot you flip the pillow over and there's a nice cool version there and you go that can only happen to me because we don't that. share a pillow do we yeah, yeah, the person nice. next to me has another pillow I feel that I feel Abilene is probably the one I use more than any other yeah. and often you're not using it because you're not really thinking in words at that time of day but yeah I love but at three in the morning you think well I could be, oh, oh that's Beautifully yeah. Abilene, yes, lovely. And that's a, but that's a, re a really nice thing. That one is not really funny, but it is so universal that yeah. I don't think there's a person alive who uses pillows who hasn't experienced that. Yeah. Quite, yeah. And it's just there's so there's a brilliantly there's, absurd. There's a thrill of someone doing that. You feel it sometimes when, in the same, what's great, because <laughs> it's about small things. Similarly, when Half Man, Half Biscuit say, there is nothing better in life than writing on the sole of your slipper with a biro. <laughs> That's as good a lyric as that, because that's about another shared experience. And this is full of those tiny little uh, low-grade observations, again, about human existence. That I've read a lot of, about love and loss, and, but not about <laughs> the other side of the pillow. There's, yeah. And some of them are really... It's like some of them... I, I also like the way some of them get, bring a place down a peg or two, because some <laughs> of them apply to quite big places, like Kentucky is one. That's, Kentucky's a whole thing. Kentucky's about when something fits really neatly in a space. So it fits just really nice and Kentucky. <laughs> nice and Kentucky. Right. Which is also you can read in a Kentucky accent. You can, really yeah, like. yeah. Uh, but oh, there's also, Kentucky. there's Wyoming. Wyoming, a participle verb. Moving in hurried desperation from one cubicle to another in a public lavatory, trying to find one which has a lock on the door, a seat on the bowl, and no brown streaks on the seat. <laughs> Magnificent. You know, we've all, we've all Wyomed at one point or another. <laughs> The other one which I think of from both sides of this one, because sometimes it, basically it's, a, it's an experience that there are two characters in, and sometimes you're one character in it, and sometimes you're the other character in it, like the East and West Withering one. And I always loved Sturry, which I do use. Oh, one. yes. Sturry, which is a token run. Pedestrians who have chosen to cross a road immediately in front of an approaching vehicle generally give a little wave and break into a sturry. <laughs> this gives the impression of hurrying without having any practical effect on their speed whatsoever. So <laughs> It's, so it's just politeness. It's not actually going faster. Right. Can, can I can I say t my two maybe two favourites of all time? Yeah. Yes. And this please. is a double act. So there's there's a Glossop, and I found myself in Glossop recently, which was one of the most exciting moments of my life. Because if you you know as you <laughs> as you tr yeah, and it's been a very quiet life so far. Um, <laughs> but um, that's the other nice thing is sometimes you will if you're travelling around the country you will see places, place names on signs, and you think, where do I know that from? And it, cool, it's always left. Uh, so <laughs> a glossop is a rogue blob of food. Glossops, which are generally steaming hot and highly adhesive, invariably fall off your spoon and onto the surface of your host's highly polished antique rosewood dining table. 
If this has not or may not have been noticed by the company present, Swanage may be employed. And it gives a little bracket saying, look at Swanage. And I went to Swanage for a weekend once in February and Swanage is definitely a summer place. <laughs> um, I mean, no disrespect to Swanage, but okay, this is a slightly long one, so apologies for that, but Swanage is a plural noun. Swanage is the series of diversionary tactics used when trying to cover up the existence of a glossop, <laughs> CF, uh, and may include A, uttering a high-pitched laugh and pointing out of the window, and B, this, this, doesn't, work, this doesn't work more than twice. Uh, B, sneezing as loudly as possible and wiping the glossop off the table in the same movement as whipping out your handkerchief. <laughs> C, saying, Christ, I seem to have dropped some shit on your table. <laughs> <laughs> Brackets, very unwise. <laughs> D, saying, Christ, who did that? Better. Um, e, pressing your elbow onto the glossop itself and working your arms slowly to the edge of the table. F, leaving the glossop where it is, but moving a plate over it and putting up with sitting at an uncomfortable angle for the rest of the meal. <laughs> or, if the glossop is in too exposed a position, G, leaving it there unremarked, except for the occasional humorous glance. <laughs> oh, Swanage and Glossop. It is, in some ways, it's a treatise on awkwardness, isn't yeah. it? Yes, yeah. it is. You're right, yeah. I, it's, I, someone, I remember reading a negative... When you're a kid and you're into something and you read a negative review... I used to put Halliwell's film guide. I used to look up films I loved and get angry that he didn't love them as much as me. <laughs> and I remember reading a, a review of, it might be The Deeper Meaning of Lift when it came out, and someone had said, so a series of like smart observations that require that the reader have shared exactly the life of the authors. And I thought, you've got that so wrong. I mean, there are bits of this, you go, this is about being someone who works in television and books around the mid-80s. But I don't mind that. That's fine. It's, it's, it's honesty. But I think that what it's got in it is 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 a feeling that we all do this sort of thing. Maybe not even exactly these things, but we all have a relationship with these awkwardnesses and these embarrassments. And it's, all, it's therapeutic, I suppose. Maybe it's an exercise in therapy to write them all down and share them. There is, I can, I can cite one example of something which is basically a very in-joke for Douglas Adams and John Lloyd, which is querin noun, a person that no one has ever heard of who unaccountably manages to make a living writing prefaces. <laughs> now, that's very clearly two annoyed writers annoyed with someone else whose name rhymes with querin. <laughs> no prizes for guessing who that might be. Reginald Querin. Yeah. No, um, Ned Querin. Yeah. Oh, him. Oh, they, they're quite rude about Nigel Reese as well. I quite like when they get really, really snitty about someone in the middle of being very well behaved because the rest of it is so dignified. I mean, the biggest influence for me from this was not only that it, it taught me how, with observational humour, it's not enough to say, has everyone got legs? You've got to go really specific and you've got to go into some dark places and you've got to go somewhere and risk that thing of saying, maybe it's just me. But definitely the biggest influence for this was this was undiluted, pure, neat writing. It was just, this told you, this is writing. When I'd seen this style of writing done before, and it has been done before in, it's, it's punch, humorous writing. It was always disguised by something else. It was in a bigger article, or if it was in a Python book, it was part of a bigger thing. This is great writing, but it was absolutely divorced of anything else. So you could see it. A bit like when you watch a great solo guitarist, and you can just see what their fingers are doing. And it was this incredible lesson in how to write and measure the weight and importance of words. And I was thinking... This morning, I was just set writing a tweet and I was moving the words in the tweet and thinking, shit, this taught me how to tweet. Yeah. And you can tweet badly. You can just put whatever was in your head or you can do what anyone who's ever read The Meaning of Lift does and keep moving the words and 
your wife looks at you and goes, what are you doing? Nothing. <laughs> and you'd have spent like 12 minutes trying to get this so that the right word was at the end of the tweet because tweets are this long and it's an incredible... I think once you've read it, it's inescapable as a comic voice that you will keep using. Yeah. Because it works. Absolutely. Just one more thing. Ah! Do you remember the introduction to Deeper? Oh, uh, So yep, this, is, yep, this is just yep, a series yep. of letters between Douglas and John. <laughs> And Should we do the bonus material? This is the additional Well, they do, this really is the Easter egg stuff, but they do a preface. Douglas writes, what we said in the first preface pretty much stands, I think. This is a preface to the next reprint. Then there's another reprint. Douglas writes another letter saying, can't think of anything much to add to the previous preface. It's nice here, though. Douglas Adams, Seychelles, 1984. <laughs> and it's replied by, is it? John Lloyd, Birmingham, 1984. <laughs> the next letter from Douglas is in Madagascar, and then Hong Kong, and then Zaire. John Lloyd is in Lambeth at this point. Then Douglas goes to Beijing and Mauritius, after which John Lloyd is still in Lambeth. And, um, yeah, it's just a very nice little extra <laughs> sort of bit of uh, revelation about the, uh, yeah. But that's it playing with every aspect of the book, isn't it? Mm. It's a bit like going, well, if we've got to put a preface in this book, then we're going to make it funny, because we're so, Douglas Adams If someone's going to make so a they're... living writing prefaces, I'm going to do a funny one. If the challenge is there. They've, they've thrown it out. Oh, so many good. Kurdistan. A hard stare given by a husband to his wife when he notices a sharp increase in the number of times he answers the phone, only to be told, sorry, wrong number. <laughs> that, with the death of the landline, that has kind of gone out of fashion, the Kurdistan. But, uh, but it is. Very That's true. Funny. Some of them have actually sort of passed now into, yeah, you definitely. know, analogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, worded that very badly but you know what I mean <laughs> but we still have Dungeness we still have Dungeness now the uneasy feeling that the plastic handles of the overloaded supermarket carrier bag you are carrying are getting steadily longer <laughs> a horrible feeling Dungeness what was it like um, working on Afterlift was it, was, it, was it a huge siloing process uh, so John and John I think went away to Greece to write it. Or if they not, went back to Greece? If not Greece, possibly Cornwall. But they did. Um, they, did they went into a bit of a mystic cave uh, for the actual writing. Uh, while I stayed outside the cave, you know, very much sweeping the leaves from around the, uh, the edge yep. of the cave. Uh, but the nice thing about Archlive was that it was quite largely um, crowdsourced in many ways because there are... I mean, QI, we, have, yeah. we do the QI research on these talk boards that have been going for donkey's years, so they look like the internet did in 2003, which is really nice. Um, but one of the talk boards, the public forums, is for people who like writing lifts. Oh. And uh, a lot of those people were included in the lift process and a lot of them got quite a few lifts in which is delightful so um, basically what you've done there is you, you have turned it back into the game exactly yeah. it's stopped being a book oh, and it's brilliant. becoming a game it's becoming a communal thing and again about sharing shared yeah. humanity shared ideas shared identity uh, shared observations yeah. it's, it's an open forum massive list of people at the end who who contributed lifts and I think there was a sense when they said should we do another book that well we'd love to do another book but that there is a group of people who have already been doing this right. uh, for years and it would be very weird to just go off into the mystic cave and not acknowledge that fabulous amount of work that had been done so my job was to contact a lot of people contact everybody actually and get their permission to use the lifts so I was looking for this. This is uh, Douglas Adams's introduction to the very first official supplement to the meaning of Lyft, opening up this idea that Lyft hadn't nailed all the experiences on Earth, which is an interesting thing for it to admit, because it does most stuff. Um, so Douglas wrote this, uh, this introduction here. 
Since the meaning of lift was first published in 1984, it has become clear that there were some serious omissions in it, or rather not in it, if you see what I mean. This supplement has been prepared in order to correct the situation. It has therefore no omissions in it, or rather it has the omissions from the original book in it, but in unomitted form. In other words, <laughs> the omissions have been omitted. It is possible, however, that the, this introduction will be left out, and I won't be at all offended if it is. Douglas Adams. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what, what Lyft turns out to be is an ongoing process to chronicle and nail every human experience that has ever happened and make sure it's, it's just put into these books. And I suppose all we can do is encourage people to uh, read the books and use these phrases more often because I think it's annoying the original creator that, that we're not all using them. Because yeah. I think well, it's, it's intended to be a practical guide. They are, and they're very useful. I mean, I, don't, I can't see any reason why we can't get some of these words into the Oxford English Dictionary, for heaven's sake. Is this our campaign? Can everyone here agree? We're, we're in the full Orwellian newspeak period of history. Words <laughs> have stopped meaning anything. <laughs> I think these are the last ones that we've got left that might be of any use to any of us. Teach them to your children. Pass them on. In the bunkers, in the wilderlands, in a few years' time, this might be all we have. <laughs> so I think that's a, a note of hope to end on. Uh, thank you very much, Andrew Hunter-Murray, for bringing us the meaning of lift. Thank Thanks, Andy. <laughs>